For today's Bible reading, we're continuing to look at Paul's journeys as written in the book of Acts. We've reached Acts chapter 19, and we're going to read about the riot in Ephesus, which begins at verse 23. Let's hear the word of God. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he'd said this, he dismissed the assembly. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading from his word. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. If you can't hear Alec Guinness reading that line, then you're you're not much of a Star Wars fan. But leaving that aside, I just love it. The gospel 
is causing a disturbance. It is literally going to cause a riot. It is making waves. And notice here what Luke does. He describes the Christian movement as the way. He doesn't call it the faith or the believers or even the Christians. That term, the way, conjures up the whole image of a way of life, a way of living, a way of being different. What's having impact here are changed lives. It's not just a religious impact either. It's not just that folk are noticing that the attendance at the pagan temple is down because people are going to church now. It actually has an economic impact. It's changing the very structure of the city. We saw this last week when we looked at Paul going into Athens, how he preached the gospel, not just in the synagogue, in the religious place, but he went right into the marketplace, the, the Agora. And there he proclaimed the truth of Jesus. And the marketplace, we said this last week, isn't just the shops. It's the financial centre of the city. It's the place where politics are discussed, where decisions happen, where culture is exchanged and shaped. And there he proclaimed the gospel because he believed that it changed everything. It's not as if they went into the, the town centre and simply said to the authorities, can, can we have a wee stall so that we can put out some leaflets about Jesus and invite people to a, a little service that we're running? No, rather, they went right into the heart of the culture of the community and there they saw lives changed. They began to change the very order of society itself. The wonderful thing about this strategy that we find in the book of Acts is we know something that Luke didn't know when he wrote this. We know that it really worked because over the next centuries, the whole shape of the culture of Europe, of its art, of its architecture, of its finances, of its family life, of its politics was to be transformed by the Christian message. But it started with that great disturbance caused by the way that people were living for Jesus. Next, Luke introduces us to Demetrius. And Demetrius was a silversmith, in fact, possibly the leader of the guild of silversmiths. And what the guild did is they made little shrines of the goddess Artemis, or Diana, as the Romans called her, little images that they sold in the marketplaces. Archaeologists, as they've dug up Ephesus, have actually found some of them, not in, in silver, but in terracotta. I guess the silver ones were melted down later. It shows what a pretty goddess Artemis was, mm, sort of. She was the goddess of the hunt, or the goddess of fertility, and stood for prosperity in that type of the world. And the reason Artemis was so important was just outside Ephesus was a huge temple called the Artemisium. It had been there for about 800 years and had been rebuilt about 300 years before. And it was huge. It had 127 pillars supporting the roof. The Roman writer Pliny tells us each one was 60 feet high. It had taken 120 years to build the place. And to give you some idea of the size of it, in Athens we have the remains of the Parthenon up on the Acropolis. 
The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was probably four times the size of it. It was named by the writers as one of the ancient wonders of the world that everybody wanted to go and to visit. The temple wasn't just a religious centre, it would have been an economic centre as well. It would have employed a lot of people. Sacrifices would be taken there from all over the place. The temples often served as the abattoir where you took all of your animals to be slaughtered. And there also there would be huge areas where you could go and have a meal. Restaurants serving up the sacrificed food where you could hold a dinner, a birthday party or a civic function. It was also a tourist centre. And that's where Demetrius came in. I suppose if you went to Edinburgh Castle today, you'd find folk like Demetrius. They'd be outside selling, you know, three t-shirts for 10 quid. But what he was selling was these little silver shrines. And you bought one, not just as a reminder that you'd been there, but so that you could go back having had it blessed and you could worship the goddess Artemis in your own home as one of your household gods. So they were a bit more than snow globes, um, whatever the point of snow globes are. Demetrius feels this whole edifice is being threatened by Paul, and he's a bit of a rabble-rouser. And so he grabs a mob, as rabble-rousers do, and he begins to rant at them how dangerous the Christians are, threatening business, leading people astray, saying that man-made gods are no gods at all, and discrediting the great goddess Artemis, robbing her of her divine majesty. They begin to yell and to scream, Great is Artemis of Ephesus! And then they do what crowds do. They look for someone to blame, to victimise, and so they grab Gaius and Aristarchus, and they rush them into the huge theatre that still stands this day to Ephes in Ephesus. You can imagine how intimidated they must have felt with the huge crowd that was gathering. But Luke describes it in quite a humorous way. I love what he writes in verse 32 here, where he says, The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing and some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. That could be describing many modern debates today, couldn't it? People shouting one thing, folk shouting another thing, and a whole lot of folk that, I don't know, they were just there because they like shouting, I guess. There's no real debate happening at all. It's just a, a, a lot of noise. Nobody's listening to anybody. It's sort of a rent-a-riot group as well. Oh, I'll shout something. Yeah, you want me to shout? I'm up, down with this stuff, up with this stuff. I'll hold a placard. I, I don't know what it's about, but it sounds like a lot of fun. It's, um... You think this is something strange out of the Bible until you listen to Prime Minister's Question Time or First Minister's Question Time and you see the same thing. A whole lot of people shouting, trying to win an argument, but nobody's actually listening to anybody at all. It's all about shouting folk down. Or social media arguments. You know, somebody puts something up controversial and a hundred people like it and a hundred people put an angry face and there's no real debate. There's just emotion without any reason. Such a contrast to what we found in Athens as Paul went and debated with the philosophers and they listened to each other. Here, it's just noise and shouting. 
And Luke's even more witty in the next bit where he, he has this character called Alexander and Alexander seems to be one of the Jews and the Jews sort of say, Alexander, you speak for us and they, they push him forward. I, I don't know whether he is reluctant. And then we're told as, as he moves forward, they're, they're sort of gesturing to him. You tell them, Alexander, you say for us, you speak for us. And so Alexander gets up and eventually he sort of motions for the crowd to be quiet, but the crowd just shout all the louder for two hours. Great is Artemis of Ephesus. And poor Alexander goes home having achieved nothing at all. I wonder what he said to his wife that night. She asked him, how did you get on, Alexander, in the theatre today? Well, you know, nobody listened to me whatsoever. Nobody was listening to anybody. Of course, we, we are in the business of changing minds. And, and not just changing minds. We're in the business of inviting people to discover a whole new lifestyle, the way of Jesus. It's just that the manner in which that is done is really important. Shouting and telling folk what you're against isn't the Jesus way of doing it. If we want to see how Paul was actually having this impact, we can see that in the earlier part of the, the chapter. We didn't have time to read it all, but if you've got it before you, have a look at the beginning of chapter 19, the beginning of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. We're told in verse 8 that he went into the synagogue, into the religious sphere, and he spent three months there debating and sharing the news of the kingdom of God. When that didn't work, he went next door and he hired a lecture hall, a place that he could be and he could meet. And there he discussed with whoever would hear him what this was all about, the way of Jesus. He was there two years it wasn't a hit-and-run mission. People would have time not just to ask him intellectual questions, but actually to see how he lived, to begin to explore it, to begin to see what this Christian faith, this way, was all about. And life began to change. The story is a little bizarre if you, if you have a look at it yourself, but the, the long and the short of it is this, that people began to see the power of Jesus. People, even people who didn't believe, began to realise that the name of Jesus was a name worth holding in very high honour. Because there was a life-changing power about it. And lives began to change. Verse 18, we're told that many people who became believers began to publicly confess their evil deeds. And that's remarkable because it's people who are not just saying, oh, I don't believe in the idols anymore. I don't believe in Artemis. I, I, I believe in this Jesus way. It's people actually saying, and my life has changed. I'm publicly disowning the idolatry I was involved in. I'm publicly disowning the adultery I was involved with. I'm publicly disowning the way that I used to live, the way that I lived sexually, the way that I ran my business, the way that I was involved in the culture and I'm going to change what I'm doing. And that was costly. Some of the folk there had invested in their spirituality. They had bought magic books and they were expensive. Any book was in those days. And they took those books out and they burnt them. Now again, there was something very public about that. People actually demonstrating to the culture around them that their lives had been transformed. But there was also something sacrificially costly about it. Paul tells us, or sorry, Luke tells us that those books had cost 50,000 denarius. Denarius was a day's wages. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of books being taken out and burned. 
Folk making a public statement that to follow Jesus was to have your life completely transformed. Now, when that's going on in the culture around, and we don't know how many people it was, but whatever it was, it was having an impact, not just in their lives, but on the culture around them. If that's happening in your life, so you're not going to go and do what you usually do, buy a small silver shrine, perhaps for your daughter's graduation or as a business gift for a friend. It all begins to change and the culture begins to alter with it. Historically, the Temple of Artemis would eventually close. The Christians would eventually destroy it 400 years later. And by the time they came to destroy it, nobody cared. Because they didn't come at it with aggression or shouting what they were against. They came at it because the culture had already been changed. It was already a Christian culture. The whole world had changed through what the Christians were doing. The noise abates when the city clerk gets up. He's obviously a very wise man and a calming figure. He probably was some sort of liaison officer between the Roman authorities and the people of the town. And he basically puts forward a case, three points. First of all, he tells them that, well, you know, Artemis is great. We all, we all know that. Nobody is saying anything else here. There's nobody shouting Artemis down. The second thing he says is the Christians haven't done anything wrong. They've, they've not attacked the temple. They've not tried to desecrate it. They've not picketed outside. In fact, they're not saying anything about the goddess that's negative at all. They are innocent of any charges of blasphemy. And thirdly, he says, actually, it's you folk that are in danger. If you take them to court, you'll find that they'll get off scot-free. But you folk, you're in danger of having us all charged by the Romans of causing a riot. Well, the city clerk speaks wise words and everybody goes home. The shouting is over. What's really interesting about this whole description is amidst all the shouting, there's one group of people who are saying nothing. They're not shouting at all. And that's the Christians. That's rather the city clerk's point. The Christians are not going around shouting down with Artemis. Artemis is not great at all. Down with idolatry. Down with paganism. You're all going to hell. It's all evil. They're not standing with placards or doing protests. They're not picketing the temple. They're not disrupting anything. In a shouty world, the Christians aren't doing any shouting at all. That's not the way Christians always have been, is it? Very often in a shouty world, there's pressure on us to stand up and shout about what we're against, what we're opposed to, what we find appalling. We can see that at different times in Christian history. Perhaps at the most we can see it in the United States just now, where there's a great cultural war going on and people are very tempted to stand up and shout about what they're against. It's not so much proclaiming the gospel as telling everybody else why they're wrong and that we don't like what they're saying. Now, there's no doubt that Paul did believe that man-made gods were no gods at all. There's no doubt that that message was getting across. There's no doubt that it was having an impact 
that's why Demetrius was getting so upset in the first place. But as the magistrates actually said, there isn't any evidence that Paul and his friends are going around being snarky or snide or sarcastic or yelling or shouting or screaming. There's not enough evidence to convict them of that at all. In fact, they are the calm ones in the middle of this shouty society. I don't need to make the argument that the gospel changes lives and changes cultures. I don't need to make the case that it can do it again. It already has done it. The evidence is there in history. The Roman world was entirely transformed over the next 300 years. And it was transformed not so much because of political power or the conversion of the Emperor Constantine. It was transformed by lives changing their allegiance and changing the way that they lived. The Romans, for instance, didn't place much value on weak lives. Children were not particularly valuable, particularly very young children. They practiced infanticide, which means that if you had a, a child that you didn't want, you could simply remove them from the house. And often babies were put out of the house, particularly girls, because girls were not valued hardly at all. They were simply put out of the house and maybe they'd survive. Maybe if they were lucky, someone would come along and pick them up and bring them up as a slave or a prostitute. The children, the Christians, though, took the children in. They began to value their children. Why? Because they read a Bible that told them that every human being was made in the image of God. And therefore, it didn't matter whether someone was weak or disabled or poor. They were still valuable. That basic Christian conviction is still there today. We see it in the idea of human rights. And there is a very strong case to be made that the human rights agenda of Europe and the world today is based on that Christian assumption that every life is made in the image and the value of, of, of God. The Romans certainly didn't share it. There was other ways that the world changed. One of the ways was, was sexually. The Romans had a very unequal idea of marriage. A married man was welcome to have as many affairs with slaves or concubines as he wanted, as long as he didn't take someone else's wife. And a married woman was expected to be completely faithful. It caused a lot of inequality. It caused a lot of problems. A woman could also be divorced by her husband, which left an awful lot of women economically very vulnerable. The Christians started living a different way. They put a stress on faithfulness and monogamy. Marriage was for life, which gave a lot of women a lot more security than they'd ever enjoyed before. And it was noted that this was modelled in the church. The churches included people from all ranks of society, men and women, slaves and free. Other things stopped as well. The gladiator games, which Rome was so famous for, gradually ceased as Rome became more and more Christian. And slavery. Again, if everybody becomes a brother in Christ, if every person is made in God's image, then slavery becomes problematic. And it is a fact that slavery in the Roman world just withered away to nothing within a very short pace of time. It came back again centuries later, but that's another whole story.
The reality is that the gospel changed lives because people started to live out this way, to follow in this way. And that began to shape the whole culture around. I, I, I was struck um, just uh, a year or two ago when Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, started to have a, an argument with Wonga, who were doing at that point um, payday loans at ridiculously high rates of interest, which was completely unjust for those who had to take them out. Lots of folk were calling for Wonga to be banned, but Justin Welby's response to them was this. I want to drive you out of business and I want to do it by generosity and love. And he challenged the church to set up credit unions and start lending money at fair rates to people so that it would transform the society and there would be no need for payday loans. It's interesting that Wonga is no longer in business. The point is this, that the world is transformed not by Christians shouting and yelling, but by Christians living differently and showing to the world that there is a different way to live until it begins to affect not just individual lives, but the whole structure and culture of society. It's maybe not surprising when we think that this is the Jesus way. John tells us in his gospel, in John chapter 4, of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. The woman had had a whole string of husbands, and she was living now with a man who was not her husband. Did Jesus stand up there and say, well, that's evil, that's wrong, we're against that, we're for faithful monogamy, you're no part in here, I don't want you in my church. No, he sat down, he talked to her about the kingdom of God, and he asked her for a glass of water. That's the Jesus way. To transform society, not by shouting, but by living. For us as Christians today, I think one of the main challenges is, are we willing to do that? To live in such a way that people see the difference that we are. Because we are not just believers, we are disciples. And to be, live in such a transformational way that it begins to change business practices. It begins to change the marketplace. It begins to change the structure of our community around us. I hope that as we begin to piece together what community looks like post-COVID, that the church and we will be at the forefront of showing a different way to live. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. And I'll end on this note. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. May we as a Christian community, as people of the way, begin to be transformational of our society as we live in such a way that everything begins to change. Amen.